this morning is Psalm 46, so if you have a Bible, I invite you to turn there. We're going to project it on the screen when it comes time to read it, but first I want to give you a heads up as to what we'll be preaching on for the rest of this calendar year. Um, beginning next week, I'll be preaching a four-week series on the book of Ruth, and uh, I'll explain why I'm going to do that next Sunday. And then after that series, we'll be preaching three Sundays on why Jesus came into the world um, leading up to Christmas, which is on Sunday this year. So we're going to have a Christmas Eve and a Christmas morning service. And I hope you'll be able to make it to both of those to celebrate the birth of our Savior. But today's message has a different purpose. And that is to give perspective and hope um, primarily regarding the election which is upon us and which ends this Tuesday night, maybe. <laughs> it doesn't always end then, runoffs and so forth. Um, so it's primarily to be, bring perspective and hope about that, particularly what I want to do is address the fear and the worry uh, about how this election will turn out. And this is not just for that. It's for whenever fear and worry are our temptations. Um, politicians play on people's fears as a strategy to get our votes. You know, vote for me or else all these terrible things are going to happen. So it wouldn't be a surprise if you're feeling a little nervous, worried, fearful. Uh, Christians are not immune to fear and worry. I'm on the email list for a number of Christian organizations, and over the last few months I've been getting emails that are increasingly urgent and filled with ominous warnings about what might happen uh, to religious liberty, and there are various calls to action about what to do about it. That tempts me to fear, and maybe you feel that, and maybe you feel fear in other settings. There's other things going on in your life where you're not sure how is this going to turn out, and you don't know where to turn to. Uh, for help. Um, well, I have no doubt that there will be trouble for us in the future, not because of the election, but because that was decided thousands of years ago when man sinned and the world fell and God pronounced the curse. And so that curse has been working its way out over generations. And as Paul said, through many, gener through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. That's nothing new. But what I think needs to be addressed is the fear and the worry about it. Um, fear and worry do not have to be our experience. In fact, the Bible's full of commands not to be afraid and not to worry. And those come from the Lord who was crucified and who understands the tribulation. So if he says you don't have to, then we don't have to. And there must be a reason that we don't have to fear. And we find a reason in Psalm 46. This psalm addresses that. It's a psalm of confidence in God in the midst of trouble. Uh, it shows us a path to rest and even to gladness that need not be lost no matter how things turn out for us, whether in this election or at any other time. And its message, if I can boil it down, is that God's protective presence makes His people secure in troubled times. 
God's protective presence makes his people secure in troubled times. I hope to show you that that's true uh, as we go through this passage. And I want to credit Jeff Perswell right up front because he preached on this at the pastor's conference a year ago. And so I'm borrowing his outline and some of his content. So let's read Psalm 46 and then pray for the Lord to open our hearts to its encouragement. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God will help her when morning dawns. The nations rage. The kingdoms totter. He utters his voice. The earth melts. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Come, behold the works of the Lord, how he has wrought desolations on the earth. He makes wars cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the chariots with fire. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Let's pray. There are truths here, Lord, strong enough to answer every fear that we have. There is encouragement here, deep enough to actually bring about gladness with no change in circumstances, and even when the circumstances deteriorate. And so we're asking for that encouragement. We're asking for you to impart that to our souls today. We're asking you to fortify us according to your word, that we may be glad. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this psalm is structured in three distinct sections. Verses 1 to 3 focus on God's protection. Verses 4 through 7 are about God's presence. And verses 8 to 11 reveal God's pronouncement. So that will be our outline. Let's begin with God's protection. <clears throat> God's protection. Verse 1. God. <clears throat> God is our refuge and strength, the very present help in trouble. The first word in the psalm is God. <clears throat> so easily it's our trouble that dominates our thinking. That's the first word out of our mouths. But there's no answer in focusing first on our troubles. The psalm begins with God. To deal with fear requires replacing our fixation on our trouble with our fixation on God. Because it's in Him and Him alone that we can find peace 
and rest for our souls. It's he that makes all the difference. And we see why in his description here. Who is God? Well, he is our refuge. A refuge is a place of safety. It's a place of protection. We speak about a wildlife refuge. And <clears throat> What is a wildlife refuge? Well, that's a place where elephants and zebras are protected from poachers, Right? Uh, it's a place in which to dwell safely. It's a shelter from the storm. Uh, it, it's, a, it's a castle with a drawbridge that you pull up when the barbarians are attacking. These are all pictures of, of refuge. This is what God is. God is our refuge. God is our place of safety and protection. <clears throat> He's also our strength, it says. Strength is the power to act. It's the energy and the courage to live another day and to do what we're called to do, to move forward in the next steps of obedience to God despite trouble. Strength is our supply out of which we draw all that we need to do. God is our strength and He, he enables us to keep going. He, according to Isaiah 41.10, upholds us with His righteous right hand. This is a description of our God, our, our safety and our strength in life. And here's the really good news about this God, who is that. He is a very present help in trouble. He is a very present help in trouble. More literally, in the original language, help in trouble is abundantly found. <laughs> the sense is this, do you need help in trouble? Well, he is abundantly and very surely to be found in your trouble. And he will help you. In fact, it's precisely in your trouble that God is abundantly to be found. He, he is always everywhere, at all times present with all of his being, but it's especially in trouble where we access that, where we discover that that He is abundantly present. And He doesn't just help. He comes to you as your help. I picture a child at a playground playing around very happily, and then there's a big barking dog that comes. But the boy is, is with his dad, and so what happens when the big barking dog approaches him? What does he do? He runs to his dad. He doesn't just run to this impersonal thing called help. He runs to his dad, who is his help. That's the picture that God wants us to have of him, of this very present help in trouble, abundantly to be found. There is refuge and strength to be found in God, more than enough to meet our need. So you look at the election, or you look at your ongoing health issues, you look at whatever else tempts you to fear, and here's what the Lord wants you to know by describing Himself as your refuge and strength. Only one of two things can happen to the believer. Either God will prevent the thing you fear from happening, or He will get you through it. 
He will either be the refuge that surrounds you and lets it not come near you, or he will be the strength that gives you the power to move forward and not fall apart. There are things that would be too much for you to bear, and God will prevent them from happening. And then there are other things that you think you cannot bear, but that he will give you the strength to bear. That's what it means for God to be our refuge and strength. Either way, you are secure. Your true life is safe with him. That's what the Lord wants you to believe. Now that raises some questions, which I'll come back to, because it certainly doesn't seem like believers are safe in the world, especially if you live in Syria. But first, let's just take God at his word that he is, in fact, the refuge and the strength of every believer and very present to you. That's truth. Now, what kind of effect should that truth have on us? Well, it's to have the effect of verse 2. Therefore, Based on the reality that God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble, therefore, we will not fear. That's the effect. We will not fear. Fear is the natural reaction we feel when, we're, when we feel unsafe. When what we value most in the world is threatened and we feel powerless to stop it or to get through it. But God promises in verse 1 that that is never truly the condition of the believer. God is a refuge and strength. You are not up to the challenge, but He is up to the challenge. To protect you and keep you no matter how bad the trouble is. He is the dad who is there when the big barking dog of trouble comes to you. You are safe in His hands and His help is to be found in every trouble. You are never alone to face it. And verses 2 and 3 go into the list of the kinds of trouble that we need not fear in. We will not fear though the earth gives way and the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea and it speaks of roaring and swelling waters and trembling mountains. These are descriptions of catastrophic events floods and hurricanes and earthquakes. It's, it's a picture of worst case scenarios. Uh, your worst fears realized. And God says, we will not fear, though that happens. You will have troubles in your life that feel like that, that feel like the earth is giving way, like the foundations are shaking. Your poor health, your broken relationships, your uncertain jobs prospects. We look at the cultural landscape and the election, and it can certainly feel like the earth is giving way. Uh, core building blocks of society that were once taken for granted are eroding, like an understanding of marriage between a man and a woman, uh, like an understanding that gender is determined in the womb and not by our choice and especially that there is a God who has designed these things and to whom we are accountable. Those things that were once taken for granted are eroding. That feels like the earth is shaking. 
And yet, God is our refuge and strength in that environment, in our environment. A very present help, abundantly to be found in our trouble. And He's enough, because it's precisely those times when He is promising to be abundantly available and present, enough to meet the challenge of the day. I'll just give you one recent example of how God is enough for us in any trouble. And I hope to get through this because I, the, the people that this happens happen to are dear to us. They're from Minnesota. There's a young couple that Mary and I know. Uh, the, the man, the husband, was in our youth group for years uh, back in Minnesota. He married and they had a baby son about a year ago. And uh, they dropped him off at daycare about sometime last month. And later in the day, they got a call that their son was unresponsive. And so they rush him to the hospital where they diagnose that he has a severe brain trauma. And here's what they found out happened. Someone at the daycare shook him so violently that half of his brain is gone. He may never walk. His life will never be the same. That, to me, is unimaginable trouble. And yet, when their pastor asked them, how are they doing? The husband said, steady. And the wife said, it makes me long for the world to come. I think we were getting too comfortable in this world. They found God to be a very present help in trouble. He is sustaining them because He is abundantly to be found. Whatever you fear, whether it's the election or something else, in God you can face it. He will keep you. Let me address two questions. Two objections, actually, that arise, for me at least, and maybe for you, when we think about this, because the reality that troubles like that happened to Christians seems to remove all sense of safety and comfort, if you know that that could happen. So here's the first question I have, at least. How do we explain times when I go through trouble... And it doesn't seem like I get help. Uh, I fear things, and it doesn't seem like God is my very present help. So how do we explain that? And I think we can say this, that God is abundantly to be found as our help and safety, but our sense of it is dependent upon whether or not we believe that He is. He is abundantly to be found. He is very present, 
But our sense of it, the comfort we can draw from that does depend on whether or not we believe it. Whether we really believe He's there and there for us. Or to say it another way, fear is the result of not really believing that God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. We doubt it. We don't believe it. Our trouble seems more real than God's promises, so we don't feel safe. John Flavel, one of the Puritans, said it this way, Unbelief severs the soul from its refuge in the divine promises. In so doing, it leaves the soul in the hand of fears and terrors. In evil times, a Christian is fortified and emboldened by his dependence upon God for protection. The removal of this refuge, which only unbelief can do, deprives the soul of all the help and support that God's promises supply. As a result, it fills the heart with fear and anxiety. I know that's true because that's often been my experience. That would be a besetting sin in my life. Unbelief in God's promises is the real battle, not the trouble. But if you're convinced that your Heavenly Father is watching over you more closely than the Father at the playground, if you're more convinced that He's present to either shield you from what you fear or give you strength to get through it, then fear goes away. You don't face the barking dog of trouble alone. God is there, and you can face it with him. Martin Luther, who wrote, A Mighty Fortress is Our God, which we're going to sing at the end, he knew about fear. He, he was hunted down his life. He had, to, he had to be hidden for a while. He knew what it was like to be in dangerous situations, and he said, to a friend, I am a secure spectator of things. I love that picture. As if he's just kind of watching it play out. But he knows that he's got this surrounding shield. That nothing can penetrate unless God allows it for a reason. We'll come back to that thought later. Here's a second question that comes to my mind. When trouble comes, I want to say... Why do we have to go through trouble at all? Can't God, if He is our protector, keep your baby from being shaken at the daycare? Can't He prevent the moral decay of our culture? Can't He install someone into office who will, as we prayed for earlier, allow us to lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity? Keeping bad things from happening at all seems to me like the best way to take away my fears. So why doesn't he do that? Well, as we'll affirm in the next point, God has the power to keep bad things from happening. In fact, he has often done exactly that. You and I don't know how many terrible things God has already prevented from happening. Beginning with rescue from hell if you're a Christian. And we can have hope that through prayer, God will bring further deliverances because it's Him who calls us to ask for His merciful intervention. 
to expect him to intervene. So God can stop bad things from happening, and he has. But this is a world that's fallen by human sin, of which we ourselves have contributed our share. God is not obligated to spare anyone in the world from trouble, which is ultimately the consequence of humanity's rebellion against God. And we need to believe that in God's unsearchable wisdom and in His mysterious ways of love, it is better for us to suffer certain troubles than to not suffer them. We need to have a concept in our minds that our ultimate good and our eternal happiness is increased, not simply by experiencing freedom from trouble, but by experiencing sustaining grace in trouble. Uh, that it's possible to be more glad for having suffered than from having been spared suffering. We need to have a concept like that in our minds. Isn't that why we like Romans 8.28 so much? We know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love Him, to those who are called according to His purpose. For those who love God, He causes all things, including election results, including daycare tragedies, including your daily burdens. He causes it to work together for good. He has a purpose to do you good in it. It has a 2 Corinthians 4.17 design where Paul calls our troubles momentary light afflictions that are producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. He says, your, your suffering on the way of faithfulness as you walk through this world is producing something. God is going to reward it. God is going to bring you glories that you wouldn't have if you didn't. That could get tricky because... The thief on the cross who did nothing good and had no, nothing in his life worth living for, he was going to paradise too. <laughs> he wasn't going to be unhappy there. And yet, Paul says there's something about suffering in God's, God's path that brings about glories, eternal weight of glories for you. There has, there's the loving purpose in it, ultimately. But as I said earlier, our sense of this, our, our experience of calm in the midst of storm depends on seeing with the eyes of faith and resting on the promises of God that He is a very present help in trouble, that He is our refuge and strength. Again, John Flavel speaks to this. He says, Fear continues until we resign everything to God setting our faith upon His promises, which assure us of His sanctification of our troubles, His presence with us in our troubles, His moderation of our troubles to a degree we can endure, and His final deliverance of us from our troubles. There is a way to wake up this Wednesday morning and be at peace once you know the election results. 
There is a way to face any fear and replace it with rest for your soul. It's by believing that God is your refuge and strength, your very present help in trouble. Our path is to take the example of Psalm 56.3, when I am afraid, I will trust in you. So verses 1 to 3 exhort us to trust in God's protection in trouble. The psalm now shifts towards a new focus, which is on God's presence. God's presence. We've already been introduced to this idea, but now we look at it from a different angle. In verse 4, there's a change of tone. Instead of the earth giving way and mountains falling into the heart of the sea, there's this tranquil river and there's a glad city. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God. We go from chaos to calm. And this is contrasted with verse 6 where we see that the, the nations rage and the kingdoms totter. In the city of God, there's tranquility and there's gladness, but outside, among the nations, there's rage, there's instability and chaos. What makes the difference between those two scenarios? It's God's presence. The city is the holy habitation of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. That's what makes the difference. That's what makes it glad. That's what makes it tranquil. Where God is, there is peace and gladness. The river flowing through the city, it calls to mind. The river flowing through the Garden of Eden, watering everything. It calls to mind the, the river in Ezekiel 47 that's flowing out of the temple and it's bringing out life everywhere it goes. Those are images of God, the presence of God, His life-giving presence that, that makes us thrive, that makes us live. This river of God makes glad the city of God where He dwells. So friends, this city is a picture of the church. It's a picture of the body of believers. That's where God is in the midst, in the person of the Holy Spirit who indwells us. It is particularly in the body of believers, the church gathered, where one can say, surely God is among you, as, as Paul talks about it in 1 Corinthians 14, when they're all prophesying and someone comes in and they fall down and the secrets of their heart are disclosed and they say, surely God is among you. See, it's in, it's in this body gathered where God is particularly present in His varieties of gifts that bring forth life and change and transformation. This is talking about the church, this city of God. Church is where we experience that the most, where we bear one another's burden, where we fellowship Remember, the psalm says that God is our refuge, not just my refuge. See, it's, it's built in, it's assumed here that, that we experience the refuge of God and the presence of God together, not just individually. That's what our Sunday meetings are for. That's what our care groups are for. That's what our other settings are for. 
to experience together. Real time. God as a refuge and strength. A very present help. Woe to the person who tries to go it alone. In trouble. Trouble will come to you. You do not want to go it alone. You're not intended to go it alone. We need the church. And God has given us the church, the city of God, where we'll encounter His presence over and over again, where we will help one another to point to our God. God's in the midst. And we are here to help each other to realize it and to point to Him and to remind us of who He is. And the psalmist does this for us. He, he describes God for us. Again, we're told in verse 5 that God will help her when morning dawns. In other words, there will be a morning. Night won't last forever. Trouble won't last forever. Leaders come and go. Today's, today's headlines may be concerning, but the Lord will bring a dawn. He will not let us suffer unduly long. There's an appointed limit. There's a transformation coming of night into day. As Flavel said, there's a moderation of our troubles to a degree we can endure and final deliverance from our troubles. And that's because God has the power to do it. Verse 6, the nations are raging. Kingdoms are tottering. And it says, he utters his voice. The earth melts. That's a picture of final authority. That's a picture of ultimate power brought to bear at the time of God's choosing. He lets it play out for a while. He's got a purpose for that. But when the time is done, it's done. The earth will melt. The rebellious nations will encounter the God who is over them. And they will be completely undone and defeated. He is, as verse 7 says, the Lord of hosts. The Lord of vast armies. Heavenly legions. Unstoppable power that cannot be defeated. Friends, this is the God who puts his arm around you and says, I've got you. I've got you. This is the God who knows who's going to be the next president and what they'll do. And he promises to be your refuge and your strength. He will either prevent what you fear from happening or he will get you through it. He will be mighty for you. He's described in verse 7 as a fortress, a high place above danger. It's your impenetrable security, your, your high place of safety. This is the God who, who has you. He has your church. He has your kids that you pray over and that you're concerned about. This mighty God is abundantly present for you. And He will be enough. So the protective presence of this mighty God is what makes us glad. The psalm directs us to one more thing, to God's pronouncement. 
God's pronouncement. In the last section of the psalm, we're called to respond to this description of God, this, this perspective of how things really are, though they don't always seem that way to us. The psalm ends with an invitation, a command, and a declaration from God. The invitation is in verses 8 and 9. Come, behold the works of the Lord, how he has brought desolations on the earth. He makes wars cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the chariots with fire. This is an invitation to reflect on God's past acts in order to build your confidence that he will act again in the future. This is the God who has worked in history on behalf of his people. He has ended wars. He has defeated armies. He has protected his people, Israel. Yes, there were times where he let them suffer. But he always preserved for himself a people. The remnant. His triumph and his triumph of his people is certain. Is what we're supposed to get by reflecting on his past acts. The psalm exhorts us to factor in God's faithfulness into how you view the future. Factor in His faithfulness in the past and realize that He will be faithful in the future. Think about your own life. Has God ever failed to be what you needed? Has He ever forsaken you? Now, you might want to say, well, yes, He has. Yes, He has forsaken me. He's failed me because I asked Him for something and He didn't give it to me. Or I wanted relief from a bad situation and it got worse. My life hasn't turned out the way I wanted it to. The way I think it needs to be in order for me to be happy. And you might charge God with wrong. To which I think we need to say, wait a minute. You're still here, aren't you? You're still listening to God's Word. He's kept you alive. You've been through hard stuff, but you're still standing. Who's to say that the denial of certain things, the lack of relief, the pain you're going through isn't something that God is using to shape you, to train you, to make you into something beautiful? And that He is producing for you in that suffering an eternal weight of glory. That's not being forsaken. That's not God failing to keep His promises. It's just that we can't see it because we have eyes of unbelief. But it's true. He won't forsake us and He hasn't. God's ways are higher than our ways. We take it on His promise that we're not forsaken that He hasn't left us to fend for ourselves, alone and helpless. He is present. And He knows what He's doing. He has been at work in your past, and He will be at work in your future for your good, because He loves you. So the invitation is to remember His past faithfulness. But there's also a command. God gives that command in verse 10. Be still... And know that I am God. 
Now, what, what exactly is that command? What, what does that mean? I have a picture on my screensaver <laughs> that I took on my sabbatical. I showed it when I came back. Uh, it's a picture of a rocking chair on a porch and the vast northwestern Colorado wilderness out there. Tranquility defined. <laughs> and uh, I think that that is a picture of what it means to be still and know that I am God. It, it, it means letting go of the frantic pace and all the distraction and all the, the effort and draw near to God and consider your God and give Him your attention. I think that's a valid application of this command. However, <laughs> in context, that isn't the immediate application be still is a strong injunction that literally means cease, yield, abandon your course. It's a command to the nations that rage, to the kingdoms that totter, to the rebels of the world who are bringing trouble. It is a command to stop your rebellion. Lay down your arms and yield to the Lord Almighty. And why should they do that? Because of the declaration that follows that command. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. God wins. God wins. The future of all things is certain. God alone will be exalted as the Lord of this earth. And so every knee is going to bow to Him sooner or later. So do the right thing and bow your knee to Him now in worship. Or one day you will bow your knee to Him in torment as He punishes you for your sins. Cease your rebellion. That's... That's the immediate context. But this also applies to the believer. Be still or cease means stop living as if I'm not there for you. Stop wearing yourself out, trying to protect yourself from trouble. Know that I am God. Know that I am your refuge, your safety, your strength, and I am very present. Let me be God to you. The course of the nations and what happens to them, that is in my hands. What happens to you is in my hands. And I will not fail to be for you all that you need. Trust me. That's that command. You can do that from a rocking chair in the wilderness. <laughs> but you can also do that right now. You can do that every day. Every day we can cast our cares onto Him because He cares for you. 
Believe that his power to melt the earth with his voice is the power that will protect and strengthen you no matter the trouble. I will be exalted in the earth, declares the Lord. That is his pronouncement. And that is good news for believers because God is also committed to exalting you with him. Paul, speaking of Jesus, said in Philippians 2, 8 and 9, that being found in human form, he, him, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. See, the nations raged against Jesus. That was his trouble. Trouble beyond compare. But it was ultimately God's plan that in their raging, the Son would be exalted. As He bore the sins of all of His people and rescued them from the punishment they deserve and secured for Himself a bride that would be His forever, rescued out of the clutches of the devil, rescued from their own guilt. They didn't know, those who were killing him, that that's what was happening, but it was God's plan to exalt Christ that he might exalt his bride, the church. You, you, if you're a believer, are already exalted that way, though we haven't experienced the full taste of it until the end. But you're already exalted with Christ. Paul tells us that in Ephesians 2, 5 and 6. He says, even when we were dead in our trespasses, God made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved and raised us up with him and seated us up with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. That's already happened to the believer. You're already there. It's secure, it's guaranteed, it's kept for you. No raging nations can take that away. You've already been exalted. One day you're going to taste the fullness of it in your new body, your immortal body that will never wear out, where you will be seated with Christ in the new city, the city that comes down from heaven to earth in the new heaven and earth that we're shown in Revelation. This is a promise of joy. All the things you fear, whether it's the election, whether it's your job, whether it's your help, if there's anything on the news that keeps you up at night, all of that is going to be resolved by Him who sits on the throne. And your joy will endure forever. So, turn off NBC and CNN Tuesday night and go to sleep. God has this in hand. God has you in His hands. Trust Him as your refuge and your strength, your very present help in trouble. He is working all things for your good. So the only fitting response to news like that is to join in the praise now. And that's how the psalm ends in verse 11. It's to make the confession that the Lord of hosts is with us the God of Jacob is our fortress. And so we're going to make that confession. We're going to sing a mighty fortress is our God, which Luther wrote based on Psalm 46. So as the worship team comes up, let me pray.
Lord, we thank you that there's an anchor for the soul here. The refuge, the ultimate refuge, is that we're hidden in Christ, who has come to be our rescue, come to be our refuge, come to be our strength, come to be so present that he dwells within us now and forever. And help us, Lord, to have a sense of that and to believe the promises. Then we will not fear, but we will be glad. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.